from the poet Antonio Machado, our third poem in a row, but this is very short. <laughs> Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart. And the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. This scrap from a poem was the tiny germ of a sermon that I was carrying with me as my husband Jason and I packed up for a little time away in northern Wisconsin last weekend on what I've learned is called a baby moon, the vacation that you take with your partner before a new child joins the family. And we had not been on a vacation, just the two of us, since our honeymoon seven years before, and we were looking forward to some time away to reconnect and explore a new place. And I actually had this thought. I wonder what it's going to be like to think and write about failure in such an idyllic setting. <laughs> Might be a little jarring. I feel almost a little embarrassed that things are going so well. <laughs> and so we said goodbye to our daughter, to my parents who were staying with her, and we hit the road. And we took I-35 up through Minnesota, through Duluth, and we stopped just across the Wisconsin border in Superior to grab a few things at the store. And as we get back into the car, I decide that I would really like my water bottle up front with me. And so I open the trunk to get my backpack, and my backpack wasn't there. And neither was the other bag that I packed. So I just stood there staring into our trunk at Jason's duffel bag and some folding chairs. And I knew right where my bags were. <laughs> they were on the floor in our bedroom. Oh, the defeat, the frustration. <laughs> How could I have failed to ensure that my bags were in the car? And I had I mumbled something to Jason about taking my bags out for me, but I didn't follow up on it. <laughs> and after many calculated, uh, complicated calculations, we realized that uh, even though we could replace a lot of the things that I'd intended to bring, I really couldn't make it even 12 more hours without my contacts and glasses. So we were driving back to Minneapolis. <laughs> and just a shout out to my mom here. She met us with these bags at a Target in Forest Lake so we didn't have to go all the way home. <laughs> And to think I had any doubt that I would be able to connect with the topic of failure. <laughs> with thinking about unexpected, uninvited, undesired guests. Reminders of our own fallibility, of all the pieces of life we don't have control over, they are never far. It's part of being human. And yet we try so hard. We want so badly to have a sense of mastery, 
to feel in control, to feel safe and protected, to feel a sense of belonging. And we can muscle some things in place and nurture good habits and remember to be kind and floss every day. And that helps. <laughs> but we all know that the truth is that life is wild, unpredictable, and that our personal worlds are very dependent on forces outside our control. And in fact, awareness of this contingency is at the very core of the religious impulse. And religion, at its best, names our fundamental condition of dependence and interdependence, and it explodes notions of self-reliance. It cracks the shell of our ego and reveals to us our deep connection to everything our fragility and our beauty, and life does this over and over again. This is religion at its best. And it's awe-inspiring and it's truth-telling to talk about these things. But when we actually feel life's natural out-of-controlness in our own life, it can be so deeply uncomfortable that we'll do anything to get away from it. We'll numb ourselves out with food, alcohol, drugs, social media, whatever, our agent of choice. Or maybe we'll stay so busy that we can't feel it and maybe even be uh, complimented for being so productive. Or we might possibly err on the side of caution, of self-discipline, following all of the rules and norms as we cautiously, scrupulously do our best to build a very sturdy vessel of a life, a stable ship. And yet when we fill our ship with flotation devices and we stay carefully moored to the shore, we end up with a kind of vacuous, meaningless life that Radiohead actually articulates in their OK Computer album, in the pieces we're hearing, two of the pieces we're hearing this morning. And when we do this, we're miserable and we're still not totally safe. Failure, pain, and loss happen. And on some level, that's why we're all here this morning. Failure, pain, and loss happen, and not only do they hurt, but they can be so deeply alienating. We feel separate from everything that's given us security. We feel separate from other people. And whether the ship of our lives has been docked for years or we've been out sailing wherever the wind carries us, eventually we are going to get caught in a storm. Or if we already have, we'll get caught in another storm. And the ship of our lives might get flooded or broken. It might capsize entirely or get blown to smithereens. And in that moment, you are just trying to survive. And if that is your moment right now, we love you and we are so glad that you are here this morning. And there might be some meaningful nuggets in this sermon and there, this also might just not be time for words, but just a time to be held in sanctuary. So we're here to ride this out with you Sunday after Sunday.
Taking a step back from the shipwreck moment, Richard Rohr writes about it beautifully. The word change normally refers to new beginnings, but transformation more often happens not when something new begins, but when something old falls apart. The pain of something old falling apart, chaos, invites the soul to listen at a deeper level. It invites and sometimes forces the soul to go to a new place because the old place is falling apart. Otherwise, most of us would never go to new places. Change of itself just happens, but spiritual transformation must become an actual process of letting go, living in the confusing dark space for a while, and allowing yourself to be spit up on a new and unexpected shore. This is the story of Jonah and the whale. Jonah rails against God's request of him. He runs away as far as possible, and he ends up finding himself swallowed up by a great big fish, inhabiting that confusing dark space that Roar talks about. Oh, how we resist letting go and fully inhabiting that confusing dark space. It's terrifying. You might be familiar with this teaching story. A man being chased by a tiger leaps off a cliff in an attempt to get away. But fortunately, he leaps off and he sees that there's a tree growing out the side of the cliff, so he grabs onto the tree limb and he's hanging there from the tree limb. He's dangling from it and he sees the tiger pacing above and he yells out in desperation, help, somebody help me. And a voice responds, yes. The man screams, God, God, is that you? Again, yes. Terrified, the man says, God, I'll do anything. Just please, please help me. And God responds, OK, then, just let go. And the man pauses and looks around, and he says, is there anyone else out there? <laughs> we don't want to let go. We don't want to head into that terrifying, disor disorienting, unfamiliar, confusing darkness. So we cling to our old patterns, to our safety nets, to whatever's familiar, to pieces of our ship. And the ship of our old life, it's all that we know. And even if we know that there's something very wrong with it, it's still the ground beneath our feet. And it might even appear to be our very self, to be a part of us. And we confuse the life that we've created with our essence, with our very soul. These days, I've been walking around with a constant physical reminder that my life is about to change. 
I'm 26 weeks pregnant, and in case the belly wasn't enough, I'm spending my days uh, being kicked from the inside from morning until night. And because this is happening, I know that the shape of my life is never gonna be the same. I don't know who this child is. I don't know what is about to change. And this brings me back nearly six years to when our daughter arrived and made us parents and the way that my old life back then and my old identity slowly broke away and invited me into that place of disorientation and transformation. I was in my early 30s and after four years of hard work in seminary, I had graduated and become an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister and my professional self, it was new, but I felt sharp, I felt ready. But instead of going into a nationwide search for a church to serve as their minister, I chose to marry Jason Tenbrink and move to Charleston, South Carolina to be with him. And to be clear, that was the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> Jason was serving a four-year commitment in the U.S. Navy. He was an active duty sailor, and I worked as a hospital chaplain for a year. So my path started to diverge from that of my peers. And then I got pregnant, and then the chaplaincy contract came to an end, and then the baby came, and then I started to not quite be able to recognize myself anymore. <clears throat> And while all my peers were off in their second years of serving churches, using all those skills and credentials we'd earned together, I found myself at home, not working, a Yankee living in the deep south for the very first time, a Navy wife, the one on the receiving end of the common request to, for everyone to have their wives make something for the office potluck, uh, Jason was very sensitive to this, by the way. <laughs> and my closest friends and family, the people who really knew me, were hundreds of miles away. And this was not the post-seminary life that I'd been preparing for, but it was all okay because I was about to be a mom and I was gonna nail it. <laughs> I'd read all the books. I was not afraid of hard work. Babies are pretty simple. Lots of people do it. I am smart and I was excited to cuddle a baby. And then my husband injured his arms and in addition to physical therapy, the orthopedist prescription was to not use them. So no baby holding for my partner. I've got that, okay. And then our beloved baby arrived and nothing could make that child stop crying. <laughs> so during her brief naps, I read all the books, I Googled all the possible word combinations, I filled multiple notebooks with crazy, <clears throat> with feeding times, nap times, sleep rituals, uh, you name it, it's in, I have, the, I have the spiral notebooks, I just unpacked them actually. And then I scoured these notebooks for patterns. There's no patterns, just <laughs> desperate data. And then my body struggled with sleeping, it seemed to forget what to do. How could I also fail at sleeping? 
and I had no idea how long this would last, and there were times when I doubted it would ever end. And I knew that none of this was my fault, and that it would pass eventually, and it could be so much worse, and that Jason's arms would heal, and he'd be able to carry our girl one day too, and I knew that all up here, but in here, I felt like the most desperate failure and just very alone, and I didn't recognize myself. I didn't recognize my life. And this morning, I offer this as one take on a shipwreck experience. It's feeling particularly fresh for me right now. An example of an old life, an old sense of self falling away and finding myself disoriented and confused and wanting to make it stop. And I also know that this really just scratches the surface of what the human heart is asked to endure. And the losses of the shipwreck experience are very real. And your life may never be the same again and there are some things that you never get over. And the losses are real, but despite those losses, you don't die. The sturdy ship of your life may have been destroyed. The life that you had may be over, but you are still here. Theologian Jonathan Martin experienced his own shipwreck when he left the church that he started, his marriage ended, and he fell into a deep despair. And he writes, you will lose your ship, but not your soul. And somewhere between your body's animal refusal to go down quietly, your mind's refusal to stop imagining, and your heart's refusal to drop dreaming in the tangled mess of synapses and memories and impulses, there lies God. Sometimes in church we talk about a love that will not let us go, and there are days when I don't quite know what this means. But this is what it means that impulse, that mysterious force that keeps you moving, feeling, healing, growing, that knits you back together in the belly of the whale. And whether it's animal instinct or God drawing us into a new wholeness or both at the same time, this is the mystery that brings me back to church. And this is what I trust and lean into when everything else has fallen away, that calls me into reverence, humility, and gratitude. I am amazed. As I anticipate changes ahead as we welcome another baby into our family, I have no idea what that holds. Whatever turbulent waters come, I'm comforted by knowing that I moved through it last time. Comforted by memories of putting one foot in front of the other each day, drawing strength from loved ones who listened and cared, and I didn't need advice. I'd read and heard all the same things that they had read and heard. 
but I needed companions to know I wasn't alone and this wasn't going to last forever. And as I shared my experience, people shared their stories with me, their journeys through death, through caring for dying parents, through breakups, depression, alienation. I wonder if there's any greater gift we can give than the reminder that we all suffer in ways great and small, and to hear account after account of fellow humans finding their way to the other side. Our daughter also grew, and she calmed down, and it's really a mystery how it happened. And I transformed into a mom, and on my better days into someone with a little more humility, strength, and compassion someone with less time for judgment and comparison and a richer imagination for what someone else might be going through. Definitely into someone new. We end with our reading from Nancy Schaefer. You think the arc of the horizon should split. One side jaggedly askew, one forever gone. The horizon doesn't split. Its edges remain. You think the ocean should dry to sand because of all the tears it held, all the tears you have used up. You have stolen water even from the clouds. But the ocean is not dried, nor the clouds gone, though you have cried them both, multiplied and more. You rub your eyes that grains still ripen, plums turn blue, still the moon increases. You thought all of this was gone. But without your doing, the world is fashioned in this way. Steps lead somewhere. All things breathe, even without remembering. And one day, after a very long time, without rubbing your eyes, you see the arc of the horizon, still an arc, the ocean full. And you are not betrayed, but glad. You are beloved, ever transforming, and you are not alone. May your soul know gladness. May it be so. Amen.